Happy New Year! And welcome to 2018, eco-advocates, earth lovers, orca huggers, and fans of science-based facts and fact-based reality. When we were launching this podcast, we knew exactly who we wanted to kick off with. David Suzuki and Elizabeth May, Canada's king and queen of green. We interviewed them both and then our launch date was delayed. An election was called in BC and we thought, hey, we'll reach out to all three party leaders to talk about orcas, oceans, and pipeline politics. Andrew Weaver agreed to be interviewed. I received all sorts of responses from Christy Clark's team and radio silence from John Horrigan's people over at the NDP. Because we were kicking off with a BC Green leader, we decided to hold our interview with the Green Party's federal leader until after I interviewed either BC's new premier or our new environment minister. Then, at the end of October, I joined the final leg of the Canada C3 expedition and was on the Polar Prince icebreaker with several political passengers, including Canada's environment minister, Catherine McKenna. Nope, never got the chance to interview her, but she's on our wish list. Inspiring NDP MP Finn Donnelly and Elizabeth May. I live in and around May's riding in BC, and I am convinced she must have at least one android body double, because I know she spends most of her time in Ottawa, but I've run into her in Victoria when she was marching for Wales, and she seems to be at pretty much every West Coast Writers' Festival I've ever spoken at. And seeing her in her element, in her constituency, convinced me there have to be at least two of her, because it seemed like she knew everybody on Salt Spring, and Saturna Island, and every other stop the ship docked at. I'll share a few pictures of our C3 trip on the Scana site. So please keep in mind that this interview was done prior to the historic BC election, and we'd love to interview May again after we see what happens with Kinder Morgan. I'll also be trying to talk to a federal cabinet minister, or the prime minister, I've interviewed him before, dying to ask someone from the federal government to name a scientist any scientist who says this won't be a big deal for the Southern Resident Orcas. Meanwhile, I wanted to let listeners know that after the election results in BC were finally settled, we set out to interview our province's new environment minister, George Heyman. And I have been told by his office that he will not be doing this podcast. Period. I'm not sure whether to be insulted or flattered. I wasn't told why BC's environment minister doesn't want to talk to me about orcas, oceans, and Kinder Morgan. Feel free to ask him. When I did my podcast about forestry issues, I interviewed the NDP's forestry critic while the Liberal Forest Minister's office dodged repeated interview requests. But no one ever actually said the minister would never speak to me. So I guess this environment minister deserves points for honesty. As soon as the new Liberal leader announces his or her shadow cabinet, we'll be requesting an interview with their environment critic. But if the Premier or the Environment Minister is ever game to talk to Scanna, we're waiting. This episode of Scanna is brought to you by Eagle Wing Tours, its only natural clothing, Nancy Campbell, David Bloom, and Susie Venuta. And now, let's talk whales and water with Canada's Federal Green Party leader, the unsinkable Elizabeth May. Yeah. 
I'm still not sure where you stand on Kinder Morgan. They plan to put three times as many tankers moving out Vancouver, loaded with diluted bitumen. It's very hazardous, risky material, and we know it must be stopped. Why don't we just start with why killer whales matter? All whales matter, all cetaceans matter, all life matters. And it's, uh, there is, of course, the, uh, having worked in the environmental movement for years, we know that some of the great species are called the charismatic megafauna. And we always like to say yes, and also snails matter, and also um, slugs matter, and also, but, you know, if you're looking for charismatic megafauna, you really can't, can't uh, beat the, the amazing creatures that uh, whales are for all the things that make them incredible, for their intelligence, for their uh, intricate communications, for their uh, uh, relationships. They're a very interesting animal to study, and they were misunderstood for a very, very long time. So I think whales are, for many reasons, iconic. And, can they, and particularly, I think British Columbians, are, we're really attached to our whales. Kind of questions I realized you may know the answer to that has that nobody else seems to. Do you have any sense of what the orcas are worth to our economy? Well, it's huge in terms of whale watching to the economy. So if you look at you know and just just scan through the tourism advertisements of different provinces, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador want you to believe that if you come there for a vacation, you will see a humpback whale breaching, and that you almost can't get a decent picture of an iceberg for the humpback whales breaching that are in the way of your great photo. Uh, the same is true for British Columbia. Uh, you look at our iconic ads, BC Ferries shows the humpback whales breaching, shows the southern resident killer whales, the orcas, all through the coast. So we, we have a very significant uh, attachment for our tourism industry, which is uh, a multi-billion dollar industry across Canada. So you can't really put a value on that just in terms of the whales. But the whales are a big part of the tourism value to, to Canada. And certainly whale watch businesses. One of my friends in Cape Breton, because I'm originally uh, experienced whales on the coast of Cape Breton Island, but one of my friends was a lobster fisherman and realized that he enjoyed seeing whales more than almost anything else in his life, but that tourists who drove around the Cabot Trail uh, were unlikely to see a whale. So not that long ago, it must have been in the 19, probably in the 1970s, he contacted, which to me is not that long ago, uh, maybe in the 1980s, he contacted the Department of Tourism in Nova Scotia and said, I need a grant. I'm converting my, my lobster boat to a whale watching vessel and I'll be taking tourists out and I'll be taking them to find the whales. And for that, I need to buy a $14,000 uh, raft for uh, life-saving in case these various tourists on my boat, in case I develop trouble, I have to have a life-saving raft and I, and I have to have the life jackets. And the Department of Tourism confidently told him there is no business in whale watching in Nova Scotia. We have no whale watching economy and we don't think uh, you can justify asking for this $14,000. So we borrowed the money somewhere else. There are currently, I think, approximately 25 companies just on Cape Breton Island that do whale watching. Uh, there are, this is actually a, a problem here on southern Vancouver Island and in the Salish Sea that we have whale watching companies that spring up that run the risk of harassing the whales. We have regulations. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans, in, particularly in the recent years, has not spent the money, had the resources to ensure that those setbacks, so the whales are not harassed by people who love them, 
that has become a, a quite significant issue for whale recovery. But it's, I, I'm sure that I don't need to double check figures to say that it's a multi-million dollar industry in British Columbia to have whale watching. Uh, it attracts people to the area. It employs a lot of people. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Can you tell me about the first time you saw a whale? Well, the first time I saw a whale, I'm quite sure would have been on Cape Breton Island. I don't think I ever saw them. I grew up in Connecticut. I'd never seen a bald eagle till we moved to Cape Breton, although that's the, the U.S. symbol. I'd never seen one. I saw bald eagles for the first time in Cape Breton. I saw whales for the first time in Cape Breton. The first whales I saw were probably the pilot whales because they're, they're all over the place and they, they're numerous on Cape Breton Island's coast. Uh, I remember distinctly minkies. They're hard to spot because they're shy. And then, and then some humpbacks all off the coast of Cape Breton. And then I also saw whales. Uh, the next time I saw a lot of whales and experienced it, it's just mind blowing was Haida Gwaii because I was part of the Minister of Environment's office when we negotiated to protect Guayahanas and make it a national park. So my first West Coast whales were off Haida Gwaii. But uh, now I, you know, I'm very, very lucky to live on southern Vancouver Island and I can see whales off the ferry as I'm going to work. So that's pretty cool. Do you remember, like, how old would you have been when you saw them? Oh, like, old. I mean, I, we, didn't move to, we didn't move to Canada till I was 18. Okay. So my childhood was, uh, I didn't see whales. But the first time would have been on Cape Breton Island. And maybe before we moved, which would have meant maybe when I was 18, when we just come up for the first time. But by the time we moved, I was, you know, friends with lobster fishermen, went out on boats with them, got to see whales before there was actual whale watching. It's a Festivus miracle! Can you talk about what we need to do to protect the southern resident population? Well, one of the things, you know, there, there's whale species around Canada that I want to mention, one that people don't know about on West Coast. The most endangered whale species in Canada is the right whale. And what we need to do is stop a company called Bilcon from the United States from getting permission to build a quarry on Digby Neck, Nova Scotia. And it was turned down already, but the decision to stop the um, open pit quarry to protect the right whale was a good decision. And it was overturned by a Chapter 11 NAFTA arbitration. And I'm very concerned that that might come back. This company, Bilcon, has been moving around Nova Scotia looking to buy land again. And because the right whale is, it was at one point down to as few as 300 animals. So it's very, very concerning. So there are whales that are at risk all around the world, but our southern resident killer whale population is also extremely endangered. The loss of even one animal could imperil the population as a whole. So we've seen some good recovery. We've seen some orcas, more southern resident killer whales born this spring, we've seen new calving, which is great. Uh, but there are a number of things. Uh, the uh, number one thing is to stop expansion of oil tanker traffic off the coast of British Columbia. The number one thing we need to do to protect the southern resident killer whale population is make sure we don't see new pipelines that increase the tanker traffic. Now, of course, whales are endangered by any shipping, the container ships or the tankers, but uh, the, uh, the Kinder Morgan proposal particularly was found even by the National Energy Board environmental assessment that was woefully inadequate, uh, even they had to take account of Department of Fisheries and Oceans expert testimony that that uh, whale strikes from the uh, increase in tanker traffic was a traffic is a significant risk to the survival of the southern resident killer whale population. We need to protect their habitat. We need to protect their food source, which means taking care of our salmon. 
uh, we need to take care of uh, the and pay attention to the amount of noise in the marine environment. So uh, it's always been a threat. We haven't had it lately on the coast of British Columbia. But if there was a threat again of oil and gas expansion for seismic testing and drilling, seismic testing is very damaging to cetaceans of all kinds. Uh, so we need to pay attention to giving them enough space. We, as I mentioned, harassment happens even with whale watch vessels that love the whales. But you can get too close and you can harass them. Uh, so if you happen to be lucky enough to be out on the water and you see a pod of whales near, nearby, kill your engine, make it nice and quiet. They'll often come and want to play with you. They'll want to come up near the boat, look over the gunnel, see who's in there. I've had some close encounters of the whale kind uh, just being on the water and being silent and seeing what happens. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's quite, it, when it happens, it's a, a quite extraordinary experience and quite powerful to, to come eye to eye with a whale. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. Well, an argument's not the same as contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An <laughs> argument's a connected series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Can you explain the Kinder Morgan NAB report? Okay. Yeah, the, um, the previous government changed our environmental assessment process in 2012 and uh, repealed the law that had been passed under the Mulroney administration, which was an environmental assessment process that was quite comprehensive but also predictable. So they created a process that was neither comprehensive nor predictable nor adequate, and then changed the agencies that perform the environmental reviews, and for the first time ever, for pipeline reviews, put the National Energy Board in charge of doing reviews on the environment. It's not something the National Energy Board knows how to do, and they've, they've made a real hash of it on the two reviews they've done so far, the Enbridge Northern Gateway Review and the Kinder Morgan Review. And I was an intervener in the Kinder Morgan Review. I found the process completely outrageous that we were rushed through. Expert witnesses were not available to be cross-examined. Uh, the evidentiary value of reports put in by Kinder Morgan approximates zero because no one was ever able to ask them questions about it to explain why they thought what they were doing was adequate. But even in that really limited, poor quality, inadequate process, even that panel review had to say, yes, there's, there's significant risks. The Southern resident killer whale population and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans said so in their expert evidence. So Kinder Morgan's pipeline is a threat, a direct threat to the Southern resident killer whale population. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Argument's an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I was saying something to Alicia before you got here that um, I'm about to be find myself in a, in a very unfamiliar position to me. I'm used to being the journalist and yeah. referring to the experts. Um, I know that with the, my new Moby Doll book out, book out, I'm going to be asked. Yeah. What should we be doing? Yeah. So what would your... I'm about to have a platform. What should I use yeah. it for? I think we need to put the case to a terrestrial species, us, that we can't forget the oceans. The oceans are out of sight and out of mind to those of us land animals. And the multiple threats to our oceans are growing. Uh, one of the ones that's really under the radar, which will affect all life in the oceans, is ocean acidification. So when you get a chance to speak about what matters to the whales, 
The food chain matters to all life in the oceans, and we're already seeing damage to our food chain from the acidification of the ocean, from greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that mix with ocean water and create carbonic acid. We're already seeing on Vancouver Island that oyster growers and mussel growers and scallop growers are not able to seed their oysters and their scallops on the shores of Vancouver Island because the water has become too acidic because of greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels. So they've actually, as businesses in operation, they've had to move the seeding operations to warmer water off Hawaii. And then when the animals have gotten big enough to withstand our acidic water, they come back. That's a new phenomenon, a new, a new limitation on our industry. But it's, it's, it's the tip of the iceberg of the threat of what ocean acidification would mean to all life in our oceans. It's a, it's a scary threat and it's looming and we don't know enough about it. We also, of course, we continue to uh, have land-based sources of marine pollution. We have dumping the plastics that end up in the ocean. We have overfishing and we have climate change itself, which is changing the temperature of the ocean currents, changing uh, and threatening whole ecosystems. On top of that, we have the multiple threats to our you know, sort of keystone species, our top of the line, extraordinary whale populations. So when you take it all together, as someone who has a platform to talk about whales and humans and our relationship, the fundamental one is pretty simple. They need the three quarters of this planet that is ocean. We live on the one quarter of this planet that's land but we can't live on land without those oceans. Terrestrial species need oceans and we tend to forget about them. So we have to pay a lot more attention to the importance of phasing out our dependence on fossil fuels rapidly. And of course, there you have the connection. The pipelines and the tankers that threaten the whales from physical collisions or a spill that spoils and contaminates our shorelines is to be burned to hasten the end of the oceans through acidification. So if you look at it, you know, as, as a, as a system, a fossil fuel addiction problem and our addiction to fossil fuels, you don't talk about pipelines or tankers. You don't have to worry about those threats to the ocean and you don't have to, to face a, an accelerating acidification problem. We can actually be looking at reducing acidification by reducing the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. One thing that I didn't get, and you got into this at your talk the other day, was to me, I'm looking in the National Energy Board, mm -hmm. said, hey, these whales are in danger, mm -hmm. even without an oil spill. Right. Like, yeah. even if nothing yeah. goes wrong, yeah. we are putting this population at risk. Aren't there any laws in place that just that is enough to, to cancel it? No. Yeah. What we have in Canada, unfortunately, is a very weak regime for, for species at risk. Our endangered species laws are far weaker, and this predates Stephen Harper or any government. I was at Sierra Club of Canada when we identified the absence of endangered species legislation in 1993, right after Canada signed and ratified the Convention to Protect Biological Diversity. A lot of us got busy trying to say to the Minister of Environment at the time, we need a law to protect endangered species. The Minister of Environment at the time was Sheila Copps, and she agreed. But by the time the law went through the system and was drafted, it's a very weak regime. So compared to the United States, the U.S. environmental 
Uh, the endangered species law in the U.S. was brought in, by the way, under Richard Nixon, much stronger, much tougher, and has the capacity to actually shut down a project if it threatens a species that's endangered. Our endangered species law is much weaker. We have to develop recovery plans. And in recovery plans, you can create strong protections, but we tend not to. And in the last 10 years under the conservative majority, uh, the number of people working on the Species at Risk Act was so uh, savaged that there were just two people, two, two individual people at Environment Canada in charge of the recovery of all the endangered species across Canada. We still have just two people. So we're pushing as hard as we can to bring back science and to have Environment Canada have the kind of budget it needs to hire more people so that we can actually have recovery plans for endangered species that make sense. But we are, uh, we have very weak laws at the best of times and we should, we should be looking at how do we ensure that species don't go extinct in Canada while we monitor their decline. Last year, my resolution was to stop procrastinating, and I still haven't gotten around to it. So I'm starting a new rule. You shouldn't be allowed to make any New Year's resolutions until you finish your old ones. Could the U.S. laws save the whales? Like, I mean, well, the we U- actually have to rely on the U.S. laws? The, the U.S. laws are much tougher, uh, and, but they can't operate extraterritorially. So there's a reason that the U.S. EPA and the state of Washington were interveners in the Kinder Morgan process. They are very concerned for the risk of spills in their territory. You know, the San Juan Islands, which are very well protected under U.S. law, President Barack Obama declared the San Juan Islands to be national monuments, which is a park-like status with lots of protections and regulations. And our southern Gulf Islands, we have the Gulf Islands National Park. We're working on a marine conservation area. But uh, the U.S. government is very worried about the threats to our shared species. We share the salmon. We share the whales. The international boundary line is right through a, a quite identifiable ecoregion in which there isn't a dividing line. So, yeah, they're concerned, but their laws can't stop ships in Canada from hitting the whales when they're in Canada. Uh, they can pressure us diplomatically, but their laws don't apply here. I just think that kind of goes to the core of our identity where we think we're the nice ones on all this stuff. Yes, well, we have very poor laws to protect species at risk here. I know that on Saturna they were trying to declare a protected area. Any any joy with that or any hopes with that? Well, Saturna, of course, is within, much of Saturna is within the National Park of the Gulf Islands National Park. I have to say, if anyone watching this film has not thought, you know, well, put it this way, anybody watching this film, if you want to experience whales in their natural habitat without harassing them, your best bet is to get yourself to Saturna Island and stand at East Point next to the fog alarm building and wait for them to come. Because it's amazing to me how often I'm there and see whales. So give yourself some time on Saturna and wait for the whales to come to you and you see them from land and you see them quite close. Uh, and then you're not out in a boat and your engine isn't bothering them and you're not harassing them. But I have a friend who lives on the channel, Tumbo Channel. Tumbo Island is within the National Park. Tumbo Channel has, you know, private homes along a little road there. And it's extraordinary. And what a, what a thrill to have the whales just decide to cut loose and spy hop and cavort and splash and play 
right in front of where you've just had dinner on someone's deck. It's unbelievable. So Saturna Island is an extraordinary place. There is work underway to create a marine conservation area that is uh, contiguous with the land-based Gulf Islands National Park. A key piece of this is that the First Nations that have had a long, long, long tradition of ownership and, and use of those waters uh, be fully engaged and sign off on a national marine conservation area. So that's, that's where it sits right now, but we, I sure want it to be, uh, coming along soon. And it's, it's one other way that we can recognize, uh, how, how vital this ecosystem is and how rare, how privileged we are to live here to be able to experience whales up close, uh, e even, uh, standing on the shore looking out. I actually have one very, Quick sure. Question: In a hundred years, if you could, if you could think of what it is you would like people to say your legacy is, or what you'd like to see as an accomplished. Well, all I hope is that in a hundred years we have a planet that sustains a healthy biosphere, and that will only happen if we go off fossil fuels very rapidly. So I don't think of things in terms of a personal legacy per se, but the movement. This generation, humanity now, uh, has an obligation to stop robbing our children. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please tell your friends. I'm Mark Larian-Young, and this is the Scanna Podcast. S-K-A-A-N-A. Please spread the word, subscribe on iTunes, maybe even give us a nice review so iTunes decides we're new and noteworthy. Also, please subscribe to our newsletter at scana.org. We'll send you updates on upcoming episodes, news about orcas and oceans. We've also got show notes, tons of show notes, including links to the horrifying Bill Kong case Elizabeth May talked about in this episode. If this show doesn't work for you, I'm Sarah Koenig, and this was Season 3 of Serial. And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales and the story that turned me into an unabashed orcaholic, check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in paperback, ebook, audio edition on audible.com. Your first month of membership is free, so if you're not already a subscriber, test drive my book as your freebie. And if you're able to support us on patreon.com or know someone who might be game to sponsor us, that'd be awesome. And if you'd like to volunteer to help us pull this together, please contact us at scana.org. The volunteers who helped prepare this episode include Isabel Griffin, M. Eslick, and Chantal Heward. Scana is produced by the always amazing Rain Banu. And now let's end off with a tune from Canadian indie rock legends, The Smugglers. This is from the soundtrack album for Grant Lawrence's hilarious memoir about life on the road, Dirty Windshields. This is to serve, protect, and entertain. <laughs>